Welcome to Medicus, a student-run podcast about any and all things in the world of medicine. Follow along as we interview outstanding individuals about important topics in healthcare. Hi, everyone, and thanks for tuning in. Today, we are sitting down with Jessica Simpson, a medical student at Loyola Church School of Medicine and founder of the Loyola chapter of White Coats for Black Lives to discuss White Coats for Black Lives organization and systemic racism in healthcare. Hi, Jessica. Hi, Rasta. How are you? Good. It's great to have you here. So can you just tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Well, first of all, thank you for the opportunity. Um, very appreciative to be able to have a space where we can talk about you know, racism and in, in medicine. But I'm originally from Maryland. I grew up in Maryland and I went to the University of Maryland and College Park. I studied biology pre-med and then I took a public health course. I think it was like the second semester of my sophomore year. And I learned that someone's zip code can determine their health. And it's, it's statistically significant, greater than anything that a physician could do. It's the number one predictor. I actually watched this film called Unnatural Causes, and it's based in Louisville, Kentucky, and I have a lot of family there, so it kind of hit home, and I thought, this doesn't sound right, like, what is that? So I'm trying to become a physician, and it doesn't matter what I do, it's more about where someone lives that's going to determine their health outcome. So I started taking more public health courses, and I decided to stay an extra year, and I graduated with two degrees, um, one in biology and one in public health. And then I went on to um, get a master's degree in public health, not because I wanted to, but because my pre-med advisor told me I would not get accepted to medical school. Wow. And yeah, so, and it wasn't like I had bad grades or anything. I just had like a few C's, mainly in organic chemistry. Honestly, who does not? So I was like, my grades are not bad, but she told me I'd have to find my own way to medical school. And so I was like, fine, I will. And we all know that you have to have a letter of recommendation from your pre-med advisor. Otherwise, you're not getting accepted. You will have basically wasted your money. So I went to University of Louisville to get a master's in public health, one, because of that film, but also because I have family there and I'm very much a family person. And I studied, um, what was it, health behavior and health administration, Mm -hmm. health behavior because of becoming a physician, you know, with aspirations of becoming a doctor, and then health administration because I understand the impacts of policy on healthcare, both at the system level, you know, and also institutional level. So after that, I still was kind of feeling like I was inadequate, and so um, as a as a medical school applicant, even though I, I got all A's in, in my graduate program, but I still was feeling like it's not enough. So I went on to apply to jobs and, and I applied to a lot of different jobs and I actually ended up working at CDC. So I was in this PHAP program, it's called Public Health Associate Program. Mm-hmm. It's a two-year training program for recent graduates, it's something that the Obama administration opened up for more people It was already a program, but because of his funding, they were able to have more applicants and more people in in the program. So it was really fortunate because there was, I think my supervisor told us that there were 6,000 people that applied for 135 spots. Wow. So that made me feel like, okay, those ads kind of sound like med school, so maybe I can actually get in. But yeah, I ended up having a really good time. I am someone who enjoys traveling and so I was able to travel and and I was deployed for the Ebola response I applied for that I was in 
Sierra Leone for 52 days doing epidemiology work as well as surveillance work because I, I was doing HIV surveillance at the New York State Department of Health. And yeah, so I mean, I guess that's about me is like, that's kind of where I grew up and what I did with my life professionally. And then I was at CDC for five years just because I ended up enjoying it. And I also wanted to have my retirement. <laughs> I, <laughs> I like, can totally relate. That's kind of how that happened. Also, again, it was just like time to just build up my resume. And I was deployed again for Zika. And I was actually able to publish on, I worked at the National Center for Health Statistics. And I was able to publish as first author for a data breach. So that wow. was a big deal on the CDC NHS website. And it was specifically about women and health insurance offers. I and mean, as someone who was single, it, you know, I thought that that was really interesting that marital status was the number one predictor for women. Yeah. Um, for having an offer of health insurance. So again, all these things that are outside of the control of the physician. And that's one reason why I love public health. Wow, you've had such a exciting life and you're still so young. I can't wait to see what what direction you take next. I feel like you have really exciting things coming your way. Thanks, Rafa. Yeah, so, you know, we, we did want to touch on talking about White Coats for Black Lives, which you are yeah. the founder of for the Loyola chapter. So can you tell us a little bit about White Coats for Black Lives as the parent organization and what they stand for? Sure. For, so the national organization is more like a coalition. It's really interesting because they don't have um, like a president or VP or anything like that. It's a group of women who are now residents. They started this when they were, um, I think, third and fourth year medical students, mainly on the East Coast, actually. But because of connections, you know, we all have friends that are going to different medical schools. And so they started this organization because of their own personal experiences. And it was in response to Mike Brown mm -hmm. and his, the murder of Mike Brown. Um, and so they did a die-in um, and that was new at the time. It wasn't something that you saw a lot of, especially medical students getting involved in right. um, as far as police brutality. So their goal is to, you know, decrease police brutality. That's something that they're all about abolitionist, being abolitionist and abolishing, you know, the police. But they're also very interested in making uh, the school, medical schools, an environment for Black, Indigenous people of color um, where they can thrive and be successful. And so that includes academia, it includes mentorship, it includes, you know, scholarships and things like that. And they've developed a report card system that interested medical students and especially if you have a chapter mm -hmm. you can actually use that tool to see where there are gaps within your own organization they just released the updated version of the report card and so hopefully we are going to start doing that for mm -hmm. stretch and just do an evaluation you know i actually didn't know anything about the organization even though it started in you know with, with the murder unfortunate murder of michael brown i didn't know anything about it until the murder of george floyd mm -hmm. and i was looking you know thinking the social justice in me thinking what can i do as a med student now using this platform as a medical student right mm -hmm. it's very different from a public health perspective but now coming from a, uh, a medical perspective what can i do and so I just started looking on Google and I found White Coats for Black Lives and I reached out to Dr. Malouf or Malouf. Mm -hmm. I don't know how you say Monica's last name. Yeah, I'm not sure. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so basically I asked her, I said, hey, do you know if anyone at our school 
is actually a member of White Coat for Black Lives because mm -hmm. when I looked up the national website, it said it listed Loyola as a chapter. Oh, interesting. And I also reached, mm -hmm, I reached out to others and everyone said no. <laughs> so I have no idea how that happened. Uh, when I reached out to the national organization, they said it might have been five years ago. I'm okay. like, okay. And again, their coalition, they're mm -hmm. really slow to respond to things, sure. which is a little bit unfortunate. But I get it because it's a coalition and it's not really, I mean, this is like, it's not a job for these women. They're, no. A lot of them are in residency and things like that. So I asked them, hey, I would like to revitalize the chapter or actually found one. And they're mm -hmm. like, I think at this point it would be founding because we actually, it, we think that it might have been a mistake. So that's kind of how that started. It's just really my own feelings regarding the murder of George Floyd. It was really difficult to watch, you know, yeah. that eight minutes and 46 seconds. And I actually ended up watching it on social media. Bad by choice. Accident. Bad choice, Jessica. You weren't but it prepared. Wasn't my choice. I was not prepared. I was literally flipping through on Instagram mm -hmm. and someone in my class actually posted it as a story. And I was like, oh, what's this? And you know how it always says like graphic. I'm thinking, yes. oh, it's a medical procedure. I right. really thought that it was surgery. And then I'm like, okay, this is a police officer. And you know, once you're in it for like 30 seconds, you then want to see what happens. You know? Yes. So I watched the whole thing and I literally sat there and was like, what in the actual did I just watch? Yeah. Like, what was that? Mm -hmm. And how is it that this man is so bold to literally murder and lynch someone in broad daylight yeah. witnesses? I was like, this has just got to stop. Like this, we need to start keeping people accountable. Mm -hmm. That's really what, you know, that's why it started. And then I wasn't sure if anyone else felt the same way I felt at the time at Stretch because mm -hmm. it was during the summer. And, you know, it just wasn't sure. It's not something that everybody talks about all the time. You have to be in a safe space to discuss race issues yeah. a lot of times. Unfortunately, we're starting to, you know, make those safe spaces. And so, you know this, Rasa, but mm -hmm. I, was, I was, at the same time, actually, I was um, asking people for photos for a photo collage for, you know, it, it was really, we thought maybe at first with COVID, we weren't sure how, how bad it was going to get. And we thought maybe we could have people participate and get together on the green lawn and take a yeah. photo but then we realized again it's summertime too and not everyone's probably going to be able to do that right so we thought it might just be good to have people take a picture and holding a sign that say black lives matter or mm -hmm. white coats for black lives or whatever they feel is appropriate and so close to 300 students participated in that and it was a memorial kind of thing kind of it was more like a, mm -hmm. it was more like a a show of you know, camaraderie and support yeah. for affirming the dignity of Black lives, especially within our own community. Yeah, the amount of people that really showed up for that was heartwarming, I think, to see. Especially, you know, like, I'm a Kenosha native, and, you know, recently in the news, Jacob Blake has also been severely injured by the police. I'm actually quite surprised that he's alive, to be honest. I also watched that mm -hmm. video on social media. You know, as again, I have many, many friends uh, on Facebook from Kenosha. And so everyone was circulating it and it was really, really hard to watch. But I think what was harder were the discussions that came after it and seeing how many people that you thought were better end up being not. And so I, you know, I appreciate you being vulnerable and opening up yourself for that, especially in your 
medical school community where you're not sure what the response would be. Thanks. Yeah. At, at the same time, I also just felt like I'd had enough, Yeah. you know, and um, enough is enough and just really sick of it. And I yeah. agree with you. What happened with Jacob Blake was highly disturbing. I too watched it. And I, I, I have to keep hope. It is interesting reading people's responses. One thing with the photo collage is I wanted to ask people if this was their first time actually speaking out mm -hmm. to show their support publicly for Black Lives. And there were quite a few. And I thought it was great that we actually had a white male talk about that this is the first time that he's yeah. publicly saying Black Lives Matter and how it's difficult for him, but also he's, look, he's looking forward to this new experience and being an ally and opening up and listening more yeah. than anything else. And I think that's important. I know a lot of times people don't like that, especially people in authority, that mm -hmm. where their response to these instances are to listen. Mm -hmm. But I think it's important for them to listen because clearly something is wrong. Right. And clearly the way in which they operate and the way in which they've been operating their institutions and their corporations and their organizations just isn't working mm -hmm. because collectively as a society, some, you know, we're not all on the same page. And some people think that it's okay to murder people if you're right. a police officer, especially if they're black or brown or m Muslim right. or, you know, non-English speaking as if those people are somehow lesser. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's really important for people who are not minorities, who are not vulnerable, who have authority, who have privilege, whether that be privilege because of your status in society, mm -hmm. including physicians. So if you're a Black medical student, you have privilege because you're a Black medical student. You are a medical student, <laughs> right? I think it's important for all of us to listen. The reason why for White Clothes for Black Lives, it's not an organization just for Black people is because we're, it's about us being in, in a profession. Mm -hmm. So the membership requirements is that you are a medical student or you're a physician right. um, because we have that privilege. And I think it's important for us to use our privilege and not be guilty about it, right? Like yeah. a lot of times, especially white people, there's a lot of white guilt. Mm -hmm. And I think we just, we're not going to get anywhere if people are constantly feeling guilty. Guilt has no action other than, you know, standing in a corner and putting your head down, right? Mm -hmm. Like yeah, if I we agree. want to have meaning, yeah, if we want to have meaningful change, um, we need people to actually start using their privilege and using their platforms to energize others, to motivate others, to maybe take a step back, right? Mm -hmm. Isn't that what Serena Williams' husband did, and I, I'm blanking on his name. I feel so bad. I love Serena, but her husband stepped down. He, he stepped down from his, he, 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 I think it was Reddit. Like he started mm -hmm. Reddit. It's amazing. Yeah. Yeah, so yeah, anyway, yeah. I'm just saying there are other ways to do that. You don't have to necessarily give up your privilege, but you do need to use it. That's for sure. Absolutely. So yeah, that's, that's the whole point. So what we're trying to do is create a safe space for Black, Indigenous, people of color, at, at Stretch for those people to thrive both academically and personally. Mm -hmm. So we have, um, we're focusing on curriculum and talking about um, the relationship between the Black community and the immigrant community with medicine. And obviously that's important when we think about how much we know about syphilis and that right. was because of Tuskegee, right? Absolutely. 
And that's just one example. <laughs> and then, you know, also talking about policy. And we know, again, from what I was saying before, how policy plays a significant role in the overall health and well-being of a community, mm -hmm. especially Black and Brown communities. So policy, allowing people to, to start making policy changes within our school, working with the administration to do that, but also gaining experience on a, on a, on a, within the community, on the state level and national level to potentially hopefully go to conferences and things like that. But also doing things like voting, right? So yes. we've been having campaigns to increase voting within the community and also within Stretch. And then we also focus on mental health and wellness because there is a significant toll that is on someone's physiological body mm -hmm. due to racism and um, microaggressions and discrimination and constantly wondering, is this person mistreating me because I'm Black, because my hair is natural and out, you know, because I don't speak English very well, because I'm Native American. And so we were, as we, you and I, Rasha, talked before about how crazy, hectic medical school can mm -hmm. be, and it's already stressful, and you're in this pressure cooker. Imagine then adding another layer of dealing with your race when you're talking yeah. to a professor who treats you differently than your white peer or male peer. We actually recently watched uh, a movie. It's called Making of a Scientist. I believe that's the name. But it's basically about women scientists. And one of the women scientists was a black woman and she's a chemist. And historically, I think there's like, I don't know, 2% maybe of black female chem chemists. But she was saying how so much of her day is spent, like when she's answering emails, she has to take so much extra time to frame it so that she doesn't come off as like the angry black woman and just constantly mm -hmm. thinking of how she has to present herself as opposed to how her peers have to present themselves. So I just mm -hmm. feel like, you know, aside from the microaggressions and the kind of abuse that you take from the outside world, there's also this internal of like, okay, well, I also have to present myself a certain way and that takes a lot of effort. And You're that's really a shame. absolutely right. It is a shame. It's the way in which, I don't know, it's just the way in which you're taught as a Black person that this world was not created for you. And in order for you to thrive, you have to do what we call like shifting. So basically, you're one way at home, another way in the workplace, changing your language. I mean, when I tell people I'm from Maryland, they're like, oh, Baltimore? But you are so articulate. And I'm like, I'm not from Baltimore, first of all. I just said I was from Maryland. And secondly, there are plenty of people who are from Baltimore that don't speak in slang. And I think it's unfortunate because Black people, just like any other culture, everyone's different and everyone has their own personality, their own swag, their own, like whatever it is, you know? Mm -hmm. And so there is no just like one Black person. But also to talk about your point of being labeled the angry Black woman, I was actually labeled that when I was working at CDC, not, oh my at my, not because of my CDC colleagues, but because of the people I was working with in New York State. Mm -hmm. And it was only because, so basically long story short, and I, I don't want to digress too much because I'm known to do that. So you have <laughs> to just tell me. Oh, but, but these are um, such great stories. <laughs> yeah, and I'm, I love stories as well. I really feel like stories change hearts and minds, so I'm all for it. So basically, there's like this diagnostic testing algorithm for HIV, you mm -hmm. know, when we're, when we're trying to figure out if someone is 
actually has HIV, right? We have right. to do that. And so before it was just a screening test and a Western blot. Well, now there's new technology where you can actually differentiate between HIV-1 and HIV-2. And then also like acute infection, which is really good when we're talking about viral load and transmission and spreading of the disease. Because in the beginning, when you're acutely infected, you have a lot of viral load, mm -hmm. very high viral load. And so the electronic medical record, you know, you all are familiar with that, that mm -hmm. all of that is sent to the state department. This happens in every state, by the way, this is a law because it's HIV. And all of that information uh, is sent to the health department and we have to then piece it all together. So what was once just two, you know, two lab results mm -hmm. is now maybe four, maybe potentially, you know, five results because you have the screening test and you have another screening test, which will tell you if it's HIV-1 or HIV-2. And then you may have an RNA, you may have a Western blot, like you may, you know, so it just depends on yeah. the algorithm. And when I was there, this was something new and they were trying to figure out, like they thought that the physicians were ordering the wrong test. And I was like, absolutely not. Like I'm the only one in the room that's pre-med and I didn't tell anybody, but I'm yeah. like, I don't really think that physicians would make that mistake and, right. and that so many of them would be making that mistake. So then they thought, oh, it must be LabCorp or Quest. And I'm like, these people are all about their money. Like I right. obviously, I don't think that they're making mistakes. I think we're the ones who are making a mistake and we're just not really sure about what we're looking at. And so I asked if I could look at the data. And at the time, I didn't know anything about SAS. And so I learned SAS, like I was like learning SAS on the go, which is a statistical analysis software. And I looked at it and I was like, oh, well, we were looking at the white code, which is the result. Mm -hmm. We should have been looking at the order code because I did a lot of research to figure out what are all these different algorithms? How do, how does, you know, Quest do this? How does LabCorp do it? Sure. Why are they different? Are they really that different? It's really just the name that's mm -hmm. kind of different. And there's multiple different panels that you can order. And so I presented this information to my supervisor and she's like, I'm surprised you figured this out. And she's like, are we sure this is true? Like, is this accurate? I was like, I looked at, you know, a whole bunch of different cases. I think yeah. it was like 50 or whatever, just to like make sure. Right. And, and I, I showed her how I looked on their website and like saw all the different algorithms and stuff. I made a catalog of all the different order codes and I saw the blank codes, which are the results, but obviously like repetitive, mm -hmm. but they don't give enough information, right? Like I was looking for a unique identifier so we could mm -hmm. identify what was actually ordered. Right. And so she basically tried to take credit for my work. She was, she was calling other, I didn't know this, but she was calling other people, other health departments, because New York always tries to be the first between mm. them and New York City. There's yeah. all this drama because normally the New York City uh, Department of Health lead becomes the health director at CDC, which actually happened. Tom Frieden used to be the New York City Department of Health um, oh, wow. director. So long story short, I stood up for myself. Good for said, you. Like, well, yeah, because, you know, they were preparing training for everybody. And they I asked them if they wanted me to help with preparing the training slides. And they're like, oh, we'll let you know if you're needed. And then someone asked a question during training. And they're like, we're going to defer it to Jessica. And I'm in the audience. Okay, these people are standing. You know, granted, it was just training for our own employees. But and I was like, sure, I'd be more than happy to answer the question, especially because I did majority of the work, even though my name isn't on the slide. Oh, that's awesome. Little, I love it. Apparently, 
apparently that was uh, did not sit not well. Appropriate. <laughs> but everyone later on came up to me and was like, "I love how you do your job. <laughs> I love uh-huh. how you stand up for yourself." And honestly, I I learned a lot. You know, there's different ways in how you can stand up for yourself, but mm-hmm. you should always do it regardless. And so, yeah. So I thought I was. I say I was basically called an angry. Well, she didn't say black woman, but she mm-hmm. just paused and said angry woman. And I and I started laughing, and I was like, at least say black. Like, yeah, <laughs> I'm gonna say it. Let's go ahead and say it. Younger version of me was crazy. Clearly, no, so, I love it. I love it. <laughs> I think we need more of that. Hopefully, we'll have that yeah. in our future VP. Hopefully so. Just throwing that out there. <laughs> I know. We definitely, we saw the look. I'm yep. speaking. I'm but yeah. Speaking. Um, <laughs> yeah, I think that's definitely something. I mean, that gave me a lot of stress. I'm laughing about it now. But at mm-hmm. the time, I was so stressed out. I really thought I was going to lose my job. And yeah. I thought that, you know, it was going to be perceived as being aggressive. Okay. And it was. And But at the same time, I felt like I had constantly tried to be there and be assertive and they just looked at me as the girl who's always smiling you know what I mean it just wasn't mm-hmm. really taken seriously and so that is it is a problem amongst black women for sure yeah. we're constantly you know a lot of times people have to rewrite their emails like you were just saying yeah or people are just quiet and why is it that you know blackness is not quote-unquote professional mm-hmm. right there's studies that show that professionalism is really just showing that um, it's, it's making it acceptable for white behavior in anything that is not quote unquote white behavior is deemed unprofessional. Wow, that's really interesting. Yeah, there's a study, there are studies about that. Over the summer, I participated in the anti-racism initiative. Mm-hmm. And I mentioned that in meetings where, because I've experienced it, where even though I am being professional, I'm still being perceived as a threat because I'm Mm -hmm. black Mm -hmm. or I'm being perceived as a threat because I'm a woman because I'm too articulate to be black. Right. Right. I'm too articulate to be a woman or to be young. I got that a lot too Mm -hmm. with being young. So many barriers. So many barriers. Getting back to just to wrap up white coats for black lives at Loyola. It seems like you've gotten pretty good reception from, you know, your colleagues and you kind of told us a little bit about your agenda and what you're pushing for. So what have you guys accomplished thus far at Loyola? Myself and so Nick, another fourth year who was involved with the petition to affirm the dignity of Black lives. He's also a member of White Coat for Black Lives. And we have continued to have meetings with the dean. Mide, who's also one of the co-authors on that, she mm-hmm. decided to transition over the petition to White Coat for Black Lives. And so it's now housed in our organization just because a lot of the things that we were asking for aren't going to happen within one semester. Sure. Yeah. They're going to happen within one academic year. And so one of the asks from both the petition and White Coat for Black Lives was to have a Black therapist because of all the stuff that we were just talking about. Mm-hmm. We need somebody who can relate, who's culturally competent and understands what it's like to be a minority, specifically a black person, right. just because unfortunately at Stretch, we've had a history of black people not doing well mentally. Mm-hmm. And uh, it really stemmed from the loss of Nicole Walls, right. a dear friend of many of us. So we're really happy that we have the therapist who is a black female and yeah 
that happened so quickly, especially during COVID. We were very surprised. We weren't sure with all of the financial, you know, cuts and stuff like that. And so that's great. That's, that's actually a huge win for us. Other things that we've asked about are for the university to publicly recognize that uh, racism is a public health crisis, mm-hmm. and that's specifically a White Coats for Black Lives initiative. Mm-hmm. It's something also that at the national chapter, chapter that they encourage as well. And the reason behind that, the reason especially for me behind that, is that you can't really solve a problem unless you say the root cause of it. Absolutely. I'm, I'm personally tired of band-aids. You know, there's so many different um, programs that we have that are just like band-aids, right? Mm-hmm. Like, and, and also, we want to create an environment, like I said before, that's safe for yeah. Black people. We want it to be, we, we need our Black students to be protected. And so in order to do that, we need to be open and openly talk about race and openly talk about racism. And it means a lot when an institution will publicly recognize Mm-hmm. That racism is a public health crisis, not in sending it in just an email and saying we support our black students. Right. That's not sufficient. That's not what we're talking about. Yep. I need you to say the words racism. Why? Because it stirs people up. Mm-hmm. Right. And it's yeah. because yeah. it's not something that we want. We don't want for people to be racist, but yet people are. And mm-hmm. implicit bias is a research term for racism. So that's another thing that we're hoping to accomplish. Something else that's hopefully going to happen that's in the works, and I think it will, is doing an audit of the Mm -hmm. curriculum so that way we can start incorporating more history about the relationship between Black people and and medicine. That's something that Dr. Cash, Dr. Crystal Cash and ODI and and Mark Torres are really happy for us to do. It will take some time. And unfortunately, it's like following through the bureaucracy and things like that. Of course. But it is something that I think will be a win for us by the yeah. time we're done with this academic year. And in the meantime, we've continued to talk about these issues through our platforms. And one of them is the Healthcare as a Racial Justice Issue series. Mm-hmm. And so far, it's received a lot of positive feedback. So I think that's another win. <laughs> yeah, I know. That's definitely a win. I mean, I was on the call for both of the sessions you've had thus far. And wow, it is excellent, excellent discussion. Um, I think really eye-opening. You know, as aware as I try to be of these issues, I think I still learned plenty of things took away from those sessions. So I'm really I'm really happy. And I'm really happy that you guys are putting it um, on your YouTube channel, which will definitely link to the podcast so people can, can go and check it out. It's really difficult. And like you said, with the curriculum, especially, I think most of us know about the Tuskegee syphilis experiment, but it's really, you're not, you don't learn it in medical school. You probably learned it sometime in undergrad or something like that, you know, and there's so much more. I actually listened to a medical um, history podcast called Sawbones. And I really recently learned about several other cases where, you know, surgeons were operating on black women and the way that healthcare was during slavery was basically like, you know, if you were enslaved, you got healthcare, but it was substandard. And it was just for the sake of keeping your owners happy so that you're able to Mm -hmm. work. So it was really, you know, I don't know, it was really eye-opening, I think, hearing these things, because we really don't learn about this history of this dehumanizing experiments. And and yeah, I think it's really important, especially when we could think about medicine and 
giving credit, you know, where it's due. I read obviously the uh, Henrietta Lacks story, mm-hmm. which, you know, I mean, the fact that her family didn't even know those were her cells until very recently is just shocking. People just taking advantage of Black individuals. So I, I appreciate you pushing for that curricular change. Of course. I think it's interesting because it's shocking to you as a white female, but it's not shocking to me as a Black female because it's just, as a, as a Black person, especially like I was saying before to you, Rasa, I grew up in Maryland, Southern Maryland, and it's predominantly Republican. Mm-hmm. And so I have been aware of my race and what that means for a very long time. I mean, when I went to high school, there was a group of skinheads who decided that they were going to bring rifles to school and sh- they wanted to shoot all the Black athletes. I was in high school. Oh so it's not shocking to me because I lived in a place where it wasn't safe to be black all the time. And it's very different, obviously. I mean, I did, it's not like I was fearing for my life all the time, but there were definitely instances where it felt uncomfortable or being called the N-word while walking across the street. That also happened mm-hmm. to me, especially as a child. Someone tried to lynch my brother. I mean, there are instances where it's like, it's not always safe. Like you have to be mindful of your environment and you need to be quote unquote accepted by those who have authority and power. And those people are generally white males, Mm -hmm. right? And so it's it's not shocking to me that they didn't take care of their slaves. I mean, they viewed them as property. They didn't view them as human beings. And the whole point too with implicit bias is that we need to start viewing each other as equal. Yeah. And that's going to be really hard for some people because some people get their identity from thinking that they're better and more mm-hmm. superior than others, right? So they're not going to want to get rid of that. And for them, it, they need to have a spiritual awakening. Another thing that I really value in my own personal growth is meditation and prayer and yoga. Mm-hmm. That has helped me to get in tune with really who I am and be my authentic self. Mm -hmm. And if other people took the time to know who they are and know their authentic self, they would see that we're really not that different, right? We're really not. And they wouldn't hate someone who they actually, who's actually really and truly their brother and sister. Same thing if you're a true Catholic, if you're a true Christian, you're supposed to love one another. You're supposed to love your brother and sister as yourself right? Yeah. And so mm-hmm. what, what I think is like people have just lost that. Mm-hmm. And of course, we're not going to know about, about the, the history because we live in a capitalist society mm-hmm. and someone needs to be superior and someone needs to be inferior. We have to have the haves and the have-nots in a capitalist society. And it's best if you don't really know because yeah. you, Rasa, have a heart and it bothers you mm-hmm. and you know about it. And so you want to do something about it. Yeah. If you are, in, if you're trying to keep a capitalist society and you're trying to make as much money as possible, you need people to be in the dark. Yeah, right? definitely. You don't want them to be informed. Education is the most powerful thing you can do for yourself. You can literally set yourself free by knowing your education. And I would say also by knowing who you are as a person and knowing your worth for mm-hmm. real. And so, yeah, we do need to talk about these situations because to see was not just a one-time incident. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's why the 1619 Project is so important. Um, even the podcast itself, I learned a lot mm-hmm. from that because as a kid, you really don't want to learn that you're inferior, quote-unquote inferior. You don't want to learn about all of the heinous acts against people who look like you. Yeah. I mean, when I was in Sierra Leone and I got to go to the place 
the island, Robin Island, where they take the slaves before they from from Africa before it's like it's it's kind of like the diaspora, oh my gosh. but it's it's another transition, you know. And just walking there, I felt like I'd been there before, and I wasn't the only one who felt that. The other black CDC workers, we all were like, "Do you feel that energy?" You know, yeah. we cried about it. It's not something you know you don't really want to read sad news, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's another mm-hmm. reason why a lot of times some of us turn off the news after a while. Yeah. We really just need to stop ignoring things and keeping ourselves ignorant. So I'll share a story because I've never shared this before. Please don't make fun of me. But um, my family came here when I was nine and we came from Lithuania, which is a very white Catholic country. I don't think I ever saw a black person in my life. So Mm -hmm. I came here to the U.S. and now my mom tells me this. I can't really remember because I was in fourth grade. But I went to school and apparently a black boy touched me. And when I got home, I felt like I had to wash myself because I thought that I would get black. But Mm -hmm. as I started forming these relationships and I learned about people, like I obviously don't see it that way anymore. So like my perception at first Mm -hmm. was, oh, I don't know this. I've never seen this before. This person is black. Why are they black? I'm white. This doesn't make sense. You know, it didn't connect in my child mind. But I think it's just so important for you to talk to people, expose yourself to people, right? Get their views. And then you really will see that you're not any different than anyone else. So I think, Mm -hmm. yeah, I'll I'll like never forget that story. One, because I think it's really embarrassing. And two, just because like, I do think that is like, that really speaks a lot to just being open to learning about different people. Yeah. Being vulnerable. Thank you for sharing your story because honestly, being vulnerable is not easy. And I've, I've learned that in other ways, right? I think we all experience that at some point in time of like, am I going to be vulnerable or not? And it can be really intense. It's, it's just, it's, it's not something that you naturally want to do, but in order to grow and to really be empathetic, we need to be vulnerable. And I think as physicians, we're really called to do that. Mm -hmm. We're called to be vulnerable. I think it's really unfortunate that the hidden curriculum is to be a bully instead of being an empathic person and being someone who not only is extremely knowledgeable about pathophysiology and pharmacology and anatomy, but is also, you know, has a high emotional intelligence and can be there because our patients are vulnerable. Mm-hmm. I mean, they have to be naked. They're sick. Yeah. You know, I'm vulnerable when I'm a patient. I don't like that. And if I feel that my physician is cold, I don't, I don't really want to go back to them because I don't <laughs> think that they have my best interest at heart. Definitely. Right. And so I think that's another reason why I just feel like we as physicians, you know, you sharing your story like that, if you shared stories like that with other people, I think you would make other people feel comfortable opening up. Mm-hmm. And that will make you a better physician. Because again, the whole point is like not getting a good history and really providing our patients with a safe space to be vulnerable. So we can really figure out what's going on, as opposed to everybody lying all the time and yeah. all this facade, it just doesn't help anyone it doesn't get us anywhere. Physicians need to stop being afraid of speaking up. We need to just start speaking up. That's what we're called to do. We are called to be advocates for vulnerable communities, for people who are are sick. And it's our job. It's our calling. And if it's not something that you're comfortable with, quite frankly, find a different profession because we don't need. I really I mean that's just how no, I feel that's, personally. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I think that's like a perfect segue into talking about really racism in healthcare. 
Because like you said, you know, as physicians, we are called to advocate for vulnerable populations and yet the system's not perfect. And so first, I think like it's important, as you discussed in your recent webinar, to clarify the difference between individual racism and systemic racism in healthcare. So can you clarify the distinction? Sure. Yeah, I'll try to do my best because Dr. Brian Williams really laid out a good definition for, for both. But so systemic racism is more focused on policies and procedures within an institution, within a, you know, a hospital or a medical school, um, within an organization, a corporation, right? Mm -hmm. And so it's kind of like the haves and the have-nots. It goes back to, again, those resources. Mm -hmm. So allocating resources to communities, to people within organizations. But also, if you look more back on like a broader perspective, it's about redlining and, and those policies related to having access to affordable mortgage rates mm -hmm. um, if you're going to buy a home or... I mean, there's just so many different levels in which structural racism impacts people, but mm -hmm. it's all about distribution of resources. Mm -hmm. And again, having that have and the have not, and it's within a community. And it's best to think about it within maybe like a zip code, you know, or a state. Sure. Um, you can think of it as like within an organization as mm -hmm. well, because if, for example, that organization is not providing all of its employees with the same access to health insurance, that too can be an example of structural racism, mm -hmm. right? If they're basing it based off of like a hierarchy and we're going to provide certain level of people with, with full coverage of insurance and then we're not going to provide anyone with insurance. Mm -hmm. Walmart kind of comes to mind when I think of that, right? Like mm -hmm. there, there are organizations that have policies in place that are really practicing structural racism. Mm -hmm. And then if you think about Again, you can say you can either divide structural into structural racism and, and, and institutional, or you can kind of have them in the same. Different researchers will you know, do different things. Sure. But then you have interpersonal racism, and that's where we talk about implicit bias. Mm -hmm. That's when we talk about people having preconceived notions and using those, those judgments to act quickly without thinking, without being conscious without being mindful. Mm -hmm. Some, I've heard some people call it cognitive shortcuts, mm -hmm. which is one way you could think about it. But I just like to think about people just speaking without thinking. Right? <laughs> you know, it's literally just acting and speaking without thinking. Yep. Because I think if you were to really be um, aware and conscious, you would take a moment to say, oh, I don't actually believe that. Is that something mm -hmm. that society has, has put into my head mm -hmm. or is it something that I really truly believe and so we have to be mindful of that because structural and institutional racism is a little bit more hidden mm -hmm. it's not as easy to see right we are very aware of interpersonal or personal or individual racism but it's also sometimes hard to prove because mm -hmm. if it's microaggressions and people are not explicitly calling you the N-word or some sort of derogatory word, then how do you know for sure that they're mistreating you mm -hmm. based off of your race? It could be because of your gender. It could be because of your sexual orientation. It could be because you're young, you're a new employee, you know, you're a new student. And so sometimes it is difficult. Yeah. You know, we think that we know 
but it's really because of race, especially with the black cop, white cop thing. Mm-hmm. That's what really comes to my mind. We're always saying, oh, they shot and killed them because they're black. I mean, I think so, but how do we really know? Do we know yeah. this person is really racist? Do we know that they weren't just afraid and then they just killed them? Mm-hmm. The videos have helped us to see a little bit more to have when there's more concrete evidence, right? Mm-hmm. Sitting on someone's neck for eight minutes and 46 seconds, you weren't afraid. No. You may be using interpersonal or structural or institutional racism to your advantage because you know the system. Mm-hmm. And you know that there are policies in place or policies that are not in place that will allow you to use your authority and power to get the results that you want. I mean, that's, that's really what it's all about. Mm-hmm. To live in segregated cities. Chicago yeah. is a prime example of that. So yes, we've made a lot of progress, but systemic racism is very real. It's very prominent. It's just something that we don't necessarily talk about. Mm-hmm. But I think if you were to look at even water prices within Chicago and how much it costs for your water bill, you'll see that on the south side of Chicago and Calumet, for example, it's more expensive for water than it is in downtown Chicago. I would have never guessed. Yeah, no, that's real. I mean, you can ask the people in public health. You can ask Dr. Amy Luke, if she'll share some of that data with you. Mm-hmm. But that you can even Google it in the news. It's been in the news. Again, it'll be in the news, but it's not like, does it make national news? Right. You really have to pay attention. It won't be front page, that's for sure. It's not going to be front page news. No. And, and, and Chicago is not the only city, but... I've lived in a lot of different places, and I'll tell mm-hmm. you, Chicago's pretty segregated compared to a lot of places, mm-hmm. and it's really unfortunate, and you can see that. I mean, Dr. Ansel talks about the death gap, and yeah. he used the metro line as the basically the map to determine that, mm-hmm. and it, again, it comes back to the lack of resources. An example, a clear-cut example of systemic racism that's happening right now is the mercy closure on the south side of Chicago, yeah. where the governor and the mayor have the authority and the funds to fund the merger, mm-hmm. the Trinity Health merger, and they're not doing it. Why are they doing it? Do they think nobody would notice, maybe? Maybe they thought none of their constituents would notice. Hmm. I don't know. I really don't know why, especially because it's leaving a seven-mile gap of not having a, a hospital, which is a resource, yeah. in a predominantly Black and Latino area or Latinx area. That's an example of structural racism. Right. And for people not from, you know, Chicago, seven miles is a lot in Chicago. It takes a long time if you have to drive to the hospital for seven miles, which can really impact urgent, emergent conditions. Exactly. Right. And the example I talked about in the discussion that we had Mm -hmm. last week, having a stroke, that is time sensitive. It's all about time. Mm -hmm. And so... We're leaving, those people have comorbidities. Exactly. I mean, yeah, you're looking at, you know, the hospital closing in the South Side, which is predominantly Black, which we know because of systemic racism, those people have higher rates of hypertension, diabetes, heart disease, which are predisposing conditions to things like stroke or heart attack, right? So it's mm-hmm. just, I mean, it's, it's a recipe for disaster. It's a recipe for a disaster and it's compounding mm-hmm. because structural racism is integrated in everything because it's any resource, right? So yeah. it's crazy. You wouldn't necessarily think that transportation or 
maybe having healthy food options mm-hmm. is a direct connection to your life expectancy. Yeah. Having what we call like walkable, walk, walkability within a community. So a community that has sidewalks or is safe and doesn't have a lot of trash and debris, mm-hmm. right? There's low violence. There's not a lot of trash or things like that. And it's safe for people to exercise. They're not alive. They don't have to rely on the gym and having a gym membership, which is an extra cost. I mean, mm-hmm. I run in my neighborhood. I feel safe. Yep. I see the Forest Park police and they wave at me and I'm like, okay, <laughs> they don't think I'm a threat. <laughs> right? Like, yeah, I mean, all of those things, they all are connected to someone's overall health and well-being. Even the job that you have, the type of job that's offered to you, how much you are paid at that job, unless it's a government job. And mm-hmm. even still, sometimes with government jobs, you know, your promotions are based off of what your supervisor says, whether mm-hmm. or not you get promoted or not. There are countless stories of that, of people not getting promoted. And I think about too, like our own system of being in medical school and how it's, you know, we get to clerkships and all of that is based on basically subjective evaluation of whether your superior likes you or not. And what's not to say, you know, I recently had a, a discussion with a friend of mine and I mean, her, she's not, she's not a person of color. So for her, it was more of like, I really think that my superior is sexist, but we had the discussion about like, well, I mean, what can you really do about it? Because how can you prove it? And they have the authority, right? So the burden becomes on you again. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. And now thinking ahead, you never know because these evaluations determine where you end up for residency, what specialties you're able to go into, what communities you serve, you know? So all of that is just, like you said, compounding. Right. And that's an example of institutional racism Mm -hmm. because it's an institutional policy. It's the same thing, like I said, with professionalism. Yeah. It's again, do they like you? Do they not like you? Most of our superiors are white male. Mm -hmm. I mean, we're in medicine. Yeah. More fortunately, there are more women, you know, holding power, um, positions of power, but but not enough. <laughs> it's not nearly enough. It's not yeah. even 50 50. Like, yeah. I mean, if you look at the data, you know, like it really is while more women and people of color are entering medicine, the leadership gap is still really wide. It's really white males who are in positions of authority still. Um, and it might mm-hmm. take a really long time to overcome that. It might and it might not. I think we are at a galvanizing moment right now where people. Well, you know, COVID sent everyone to their room and was like, you're not doing well. Bad behavior. (laughs) Think about what you just did. And as someone who studies public health, it's kind of sad that it took a global pandemic for people to really start realizing that systemic racism is real. Right. And that all of the health disparities, especially in the United States, like having Latinx people dying at much faster rates than Mm -hmm. any other demographic group. It's sad. But I think people are thinking about it because they really have nowhere to go. Yep. And so hopefully people, you know, have their come to Jesus moment or whatever mm-hmm. it may be. And they just think about, okay, well, this wasn't working for us collectively. Yeah. Over 210,000 people have died from COVID. Most of this could have been preventable. We have the highest death rate of any other country. We're the wealthiest country our healthcare system is trash. It really depends on who's in charge at, at the White House as far as how much funding we have for, for public health emergencies. 
And unfortunately, all of that money was, a lot of the money was decreased under the current administration. Mm -hmm. Prior to this, even though many people have been talking about that an epidemic like this, a Mm -hmm. pandemic like this was on the cusp. And so now, because we put band-aids on things and we didn't really address systemic racism, it's blowing up in our face and and we're, we're burying so many people and a lot of healthcare workers have died. Healthy people, old people, everybody is being affected really. And I think this could be that turning point. I sure hope so. It could be, it could be the tipping point. I hope so. And it's scary to think that if this is not the tipping point, then I don't know what is. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, so maybe to just wrap things up. So what are some solutions you propose for beginning to dismantle racism in medicine? It's going to take some time, like you said. The priorities document that White Coats for Black Lives has developed is 20 pages long because we're talking about changing social norms, too. We're not just talking about addressing policies. And I think, you know, it takes a little bit of time for people to kind of realize that this problem is also affecting them. but. The best thing that we can do is for the Black people who, and the, the Black Indigenous people of color who are currently in medical schools, we can start making it a safe space for them and we can protect them. Mm-hmm. So basically, like I was saying, uh, providing Black people, Black Indigenous people of color with a safe space. So that means having a Black licensed therapist that specializes in anxiety, depression, and has cultural sensitivity, mm-hmm. or cultural comp- competency actually hiring a chief of health equity in the office of ODI, if there's already not one. Most of the time, the office of diversity, equity, and inclusion at a medical school is really an afterthought. Mm -hmm. And they're not prioritized. They don't have the funding and resources that they need. Resources go beyond just funding. It also means personnel. So making sure that they're fully staffed, Mm -hmm. um, that's how you prioritize and protect Black people because they need a place to go um, and they need to be able to have mentors. And a way in which they can get those mentors is normally through the Office of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion. We all know that medicine is about who knows you Mm -hmm. and not necessarily who you know, right? Right. That's very different. And so we need to have people who are allies, who are willing to mentor, you know, medical students to help them get through the, the medical school program but also beyond in writing them letters of recommendations mm-hmm. and things like that. We also need to have mandatory implicit bias training at medical school, not only for the physicians, because like I said before, it's great for us to be competent in, in the medicine, but we also need to be competent as, as empathetic and real doctors, mm-hmm. really, yeah. just being able to provide that patient-centered care and not losing our humanity along the way. That's what I mean by saying real. I also think it's really important to facilitate grand rounds that are talking about racism and again that public health, that racism is a public health crisis. Mm-hmm. This is all about creating that safe space, right? It's all about having this environment where at this medical school and hopefully at every medical school we talk about the determinants of health and one of those being racism. It's actually probably the number one, really. Yeah. So that's another thing. Hiring more Black faculty, right? Having more Black faculty, you can't no longer have just like the token, the trophy. <laughs> the same thing that we do with our students. Yep. You know, we'll have, we'll put the same students on the website and on brochures and things like that. And it's like, you know, or even me, for example, oh, Justin's doing so well. Well, I actually struggled and you guys didn't really help me at yeah. first. So, yeah. Like there's, 
there are issues. And so I think, it should, again, it goes back with protecting our students, providing our students with scholarships, because unfortunately, Black Indigenous people of color sometimes come from poor backgrounds, mm-hmm. especially if they're the first person in their family to become physicians. I think all first gen should have some extra scholarship funding for them. Mm-hmm. We also need to have funding for Black people to have access to resources for licensing exams. So, you know, giving them scholarship money to help purchase UWorld, yeah. to help purchase Sketchy and all the other resources that really help you to study efficiently mm-hmm. because there's just not enough time. And some people are making these decisions based off of like, do I eat food? Right. Do I pay my rent? Do I stay at home? You know, because it's just so expensive being a medical student and the expenses just keep increasing. I mean, we have to pay for all of these licensing exams. Mm-hmm. Even if it was just to help pay for the licensing exam itself, that would be great. I also think it's really important to address professionalism and to make sure that there's not white privilege immersed within that professionalism and that we're really focusing on developing professional beings and not people who are you know, acceptable in white America. Yeah. Because that's kind of how it is right now. It really is. Yeah. And there's a few other things that I can think of, you know, not letting people fall through the cracks. If there are black people who, black indigenous people of color who are um, on the borderline of passing, you Mm -hmm. know, not waiting until the very end to have these conversations, checking in with them to see how they're doing, making it more personal, you know, Mm -hmm. going out, again, having ODI have the resources that they need, they can do this. They'll have the time, they'll have more staff. I think it's really important to connect people because I've benefited a lot by having relationships directly with folks in ODI and and Dean um, Mendez, actually the Dean of Students. So that has helped me get through difficult times as well as having a spiritual director. You know, if someone's not interested in talking to the Dean, maybe they can talk to a spiritual director. But they need to talk to somebody because it is very difficult and you have to be your number one cheerleader. And then you have more of a financial burden, right? Right. So I don't want schools to just think that they should start recruiting students because we need to have the resources and we need to create that safe space for the students to be there. We can't just say, oh, we have 15 Black students. We're doing good. No, <laughs> we need to make sure that they're successful. That these, that these students are thriving and they're successful and they're happy and they want to recommend this school to other students. Right. That should be the measure. It shouldn't be the numbers. We should stop looking at quotas and we should really start looking at what is your experience here? Mm-hmm. You know, that's why audits are so helpful in starting to implement anti-racism within curriculum yeah. and, and the trainings and, and things like that. And I think too, like the white coats for Black Lives, the report cards that you spoke about are kind of helping to keep institutions accountable because anyone can see that. And you know, if I am a high achieving Black person, I'm not going to want to apply to an institution that doesn't support Black people. That's ridiculous. <laughs> you know, That's so. That's right. You don't just want to get in, you want to graduate, you want to yeah. get onto the, you know, get accepted to the residency program of your choice. Right. Right. And you want to be able to have a good um, experience when you're on the wards. And that means, you know, you have that school has relationships with other hospitals and other institutions that are places where people can thrive. So I think it's important to also, you know, give back to those communities, but 
even thinking about how we can help out our own communities. That's another thing that schools can do, but right now I think there's plenty of work to be done with just addressing the Black Indigenous people of color within the school and making sure that we have more representation at every stage and not mm -hmm. just a few Black teams. No, we need we need equal representation of faculty and course directors mm -hmm. and people who are in tutoring and things like that. Yeah, so. definitely. So how can our listeners get involved? Yeah, that's a great, really great question. So there's multiple ways you can, you can obviously get on the White Coats of Black Lives listserv, which is whitecoatsofblacklives.stretch at gmail.com. And we'll be happy to add you to our listserv and you can see all the activities that we're doing. You can follow us on social media, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at WC4BL-SOM. And really, honestly, you should, no matter where you are, if you're in the Chicago area or somewhere else, you should get involved um, in the local community with protests, peaceful protests, disruptive protests, as long as you're not like breaking windows and doing things <laughs> like that. But when I say disruptive, I mean you know, using um, a megaphone mm -hmm. or marching in the street, those are the ways in which you can be disruptive. Mm -hmm. And the whole point is to bring attention to what your, your, your chants are. So whether it be Black Lives Matter, whether it be Justice for Breonna Taylor, all of these things, because we're talking about, it goes beyond just the hospitals and the medical yeah. schools. We're talking about create, like changing the social norm within the United States. So anything that is promoting you know, cultural competency, diversity, inclusion, black power, black rights. We didn't even get on black power. And Dr. David Ansel, who is a, a white Jewish male, always says people should be thankful that you guys are only ask, asking for black lives to matter. You should be asking for black power. Yeah, definitely. But, but yeah, so, you know, there you can vote. You can be an educated voter, not just voting, but being an educated voter. Mm -hmm. You can call your constituents if you find out about issues like the mercy closure, for example. For us at White Coast for Black Lives, we developed a script that people can use to call. And I've called both the governor and the mayor's office. Um, and it's pretty easy to do. It doesn't mm -hmm. take, it takes less than five minutes to call both of those yeah. offices. Yeah, there are so many different trainings going on now, so many different webinars. The Chicago Health Coalition for Black Lives has a lot of webinars that they facilitate in training and trainings as well. But really just get involved locally and support mm -hmm. and amplify your Black colleagues. Listen to them, do a lot of listening, read medical apartheid. If you didn't know what Rasa was talking about, read Henrietta Lacks, the story, or watch it. Um, watch Just Mercy or read the book. I mean, there are so many books. Mm -hmm. And I think it's really important for us to understand because, you know, for me, I don't really know what it's like to be a South Asian American, but I have a lot of South Asian friends. I spent some time in India and I educate myself, right? Like that's all that we're asking people to do. And especially medical students, there's no excuse. If you know how to memorize all the information that we have to memorize, if you were eight, if you're smart enough to get into medical school, you should be able to be culturally competent. There's absolutely <laughs> no excuse. Amen. You know? mm -hmm. So that's amazing. So there's plenty, plenty uh, everyone can do to help out this mm -hmm. cause. And you don't have to be black. Yep. Don't have to be black. Yeah. Do you have any final thoughts or parting words as we wrap up? I just want to say thank you for the opportunity to share. I'm so happy um, that I have this ability to, you know, talk with you, Rasa, yeah. and 
you know, all of these things are very important and I'm just thankful. Well, we're very thankful for you for joining us and for continuing to educate your community and all that you're doing, you know, for not just Strit as a medical school, but for the greater Chicago area as a whole. And yeah, I'm really excited to see where your career will take you because I know you'll be doing big things. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to this episode. This wouldn't be possible without the support from our listeners. Please rate, review, and subscribe. We appreciate donations to help fund the production of this podcast. To support us, go to medicuspodcast.com where you can additionally find show notes, links, and information about our guests. We are at Medicus Podcast on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. If you have any questions, comments, or episode suggestions, please submit them on our website. This podcast is intended for general information purposes only and does not constitute the practice of medicine. No patient-doctor relation is formed, and the content of this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Views and opinions are their own and do not represent any organization.